welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 64th episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Osvaldo Oyola about comic books, hip-hop, and the crossroads where they meet. Along the way, we discussed the limits of well-meaning white people, whether Slick Rick really needed his eye patch, and chronicling the quest for diversity in the origins of comic books. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail, and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake i've been listening to the episodes of your show and every time you ask someone that i i have to laugh just because the word snowflake is so fraught now in the in the discourse so it's like at least in the united states where you know it's become this like things so i think i started thinking about snowflakes and the way the word snowflake is thrown around and i'm like huh <laughs> but <laughs> i don't know what makes me a unique snowflake i think i grew up in brooklyn in the 70s and the 80s I uh, had a kind of circuitous educational career where I, I did all sorts of things, went to a whole bunch of different colleges, went away to a boarding school, which was unusual for me, given where I grew up and how I grew up. I think it gave me like a perspective on the world that I, I definitely would not have had if I hadn't both left urban, gritty New York of the 80s to go to a friend's boarding school for four years. And also nodded, like dropped out of college and ended up doing a whole bunch of different things before I went back to college and ended up getting multiple degrees. Well, you could start with who you are because you skipped that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Dr. Osvaldo Ayola. I'm a scholar of transnational American literature and popular culture, particularly comics. I teach at New York University and I'm the writer and editor of the Middle Spaces blog, which takes a look at comics and music through the lens of race and gender and other forms of identity. Is that what you were looking for? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Now, initially, you sent me through a sort of compressed portfolio of some of your academic work, and I was kind of surprised to see Machine Man in there so prominently, because the thing is, I know how I know Machine Man. You know him from Next Wave. That was later, but uh, uh, that was the, sort of the defining one. I knew him from two random issues, kind of terrible issues, these little episodic things of him being an insurance investigator and then going to fight someone and then getting stuck falling down an elevator shaft. And because that was the nature of comics that I would get, where I would just get a random issue and never be able to... To seek out the following story to me that was machine man was he was an insurance investigator who would snoop around and get kicked down an elevator shaft right and to me machine man was always i mean whatever else he might do to me machine man was always that yearning figure who wished that he was like had a normal life right that he could be more human that the office girl would love him or, or that he would be able to achieve what he saw the people around him and of course like he had the most banal job right he's an insurance salesman or investigator <laughs> it's like all the other superheroes are journalists or photographers or doctors or industrialists and he's an insurance salesman and he you know it seems like in order to learn how to be human he picked the most like normal <laughs> job possible it's like the way i could learn to be human is by being bored and being boring <laughs> i'm gonna norm core the shit out of this exactly maybe machine man invented <laughs> norm core you know we need to consider that i definitely think that's why years later we get the vision in a sweater vest yes right right <laughs> So um, to me, Machine Man is just part of this tradition of those robot types, right? These near human or android figures that are trying to figure out how to be human, right? And often how, in some ways, perform humanity better than everybody around them, even as they are still claiming or trying to be or express something that they identify as humanity, which I always think is kind of funny. Like there's a sense of increased like sympathy 
that they have or like careful thought about everything that normal human beings don't normally have, you know, because they take everything for granted. So I, I think it's kind of interesting how in their trying to be human, they often are depicted in ways that make them better at being human, right? Like who was more thoughtful than like data on the next generation, right? He was always trying to be human, but always trying to be a friend, right? He had all these things that he emulated, these values that he emulated, which he couldn't feel, but somehow did them better than anyone. And that's also why I think in, in there was that one weird episode where he's tried to date, where he tried to have a yes. relationship. And in taking on some of the, for lack of a better word, the patriarchal aspects of a relationship of being the man in the house and stuff, that really bumped, even for me as a kid, as being like, this is weird. This is not what he's supposed to be doing. Right. And it didn't take because that was not what Data wanted to do. That was not the right way of being human. Yeah, it's weird. You also think by the 23rd century, right, they would have gotten rid of patriarchal stuff, but clearly he had access to it in a way to try to emulate it at least a little bit. I was going to say, I can no prize that a little bit because you know how Data never uses contractions. Uh-huh. I, I do not, as opposed to I don't. Yeah. In that episode, when he's having the very cliched, stereotypical argument with his girlfriend, whose name escapes me, I'm sorry, he says, you're not my mother, uh, and uses a contraction, which twigged for me that, okay, he has lifted this whole cloth from another place. He's even emulating the colloquialisms and the contractions. So this is not him. Right. So it's okay. Yes, he's just quoting something like the honeymooners or something like some yeah, traditional exactly, yeah. TV show or something. Right. That makes, that makes sense. That That's a good attention to detail. Thank you. I know I've seen that episode multiple times. I never caught that. And really, when you look at, like, because the thing is, the minute you mentioned it, my brain started running through other examples. And the first one, oddly enough, that popped up was not a matter of a robot. It's Superman. Mm. You've got someone from another culture, from another world, who arrives and essentially assimilates the best parts of being human in the way that Superman is kind of this ultimate immigrant story. Mm -hmm. And having spent a lot of time among, especially in Australia, there's a huge migrant culture. And my ex's family was German, and they mm -hmm. were German migrants who arrived in the 1970s in a very rough part of Sydney. Hearing the stories of what they assimilated and what kind of pushback they received, it reminded me of, there's a, a line from Terry Pratchett where he talks about when dwarfs come to Ankh-Morpork, which is a human city. Mm -hmm. You know, dwarfs who in the mountains would live quiet lives and go to sleep at 9 p.m. with a cup of cocoa and do their work, move to the city and suddenly start wearing horned helmets and carrying an axe everywhere. <laughs> Going by the name of like Grab Pot Thunder Gust and having one drink and axing someone off at the knee. And they said that in that way that people who come from other places become the embodiment of that place when they go somewhere new, like the Irish in Boston or Australians everywhere. Mm -hmm. Funny. The thing about Superman, though, is Superman, right, he's an infant when he comes to Kansas. So he doesn't know anything different. You know, oh, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's less of a considered. Yeah. I mean, I think those are two basic ways people think about Superman, like either he is the alien, right, who is on Earth and is trying to figure it out somehow or is like somehow essentially different or the idea that he is he really represents Kansas, right? Like he doesn't represent Krypton. He represents Kansas or some like idealized, compassionate American figure or something. So so I'm not sure. I don't know. I see it both ways. I guess it depends on how he's been written at different so different people have focused on one aspect or another. Have you ever read It's Superman by Tom DeHaven? I think it's DeHaven. No, I haven't. Have you heard of it? I don't think I have, to be honest. Please fill me in. It's a Superman novel that DC asked him to write. It's written in like like a social realist style, which is pretty amazing for the fact that it's a, basically a Superman origin story. It takes place in the 1930s, and essentially it ends where Action Comics number one would begin. And it makes some definite changes. It's New York. It's not Metropolis. Lex Luthor is an alderman in Brooklyn. There's very little, you know, at the end there's a robot but it doesn't even matter. But anyway, it's a beautifully written book that's out of print, I guess, but you can usually find it on like half.com or in a used bookstore for cheap. I, bought, I literally bought mine for 10 cents. Wow. Also, I'm looking at these covers. These covers are amazing. Yeah. But what I love about it is just that it focuses so much on his trying to figure out who he is in, since it's a period piece and it's a depression, it really shows how that at least that early Superman would have been shaped. And he has a little bit of that golden age Superman, like tough guy, like doesn't want to take shit from anybody style. That's not quite the Boy Scout. And it's interesting things like his father, Jonathan Kent, is this very kind of progressive figure in Kansas. 
this. He's not well liked. Like he's well liked in the community because he's like trustworthy, but he's not well liked because he's an atheist and he's always oh. he's always been like I'm not going to go to church because I don't believe it. Like Martha went to church, but he didn't. So he didn't take part in the community in a certain way. But at the same time, he also made sure that he employed African American workers on his farm and he always treated them with respect in a way that was put him at odds with his community as well. But that shapes Clark in a way that I think is really, I don't know, it, it was a, it's a very like New Deal, FDR, Depression era and corrupt politics shaping of the Superman story that that's just really well written too. It's just very beautifully written. I guess there was just no market for that book when it came out. Yeah, because it came out in 2005. And yeah, I can see that just kind of not quite hitting the mark in that time. But I definitely want to track this down and see if I can find it locally. Yeah, I would love to see a graphic version of it. I would love for someone to write it and draw it as a comic because I think it would work with. I think it would be cool to maybe get someone like Doc Shainer who could get that kind yes. of old school look to it. That really clean lined kind of throwback kind of art style. Yeah, this is. I think that would be really good. There, instead of going, so you keep expecting him to go, you know, to New York, Metropolis or whatever, but he actually goes west. He spends his whole time traveling, like this whole loop of the country and like learning it. And he gets his original suit because he works as a, like a stuntman and a fireman on the Hollywood set. And that's where he gets his original like Superman suit, which is kind of funny. And at some point like burns off, you know, burns off his body when he's like <laughs> saving, saving somebody or whatever. Yeah, totally. All right. So let's start with the basics. You mentioned growing up in Brooklyn in the 70s. Let's start there. Okay. I grew up in a, a neighborhood called Sunset Park, which at the time was predominantly Puerto Rican. My family's from Puerto Rico. I, I was born in Brooklyn, but my mom is from Puerto Rico. My dad was too. Until very recently, my family started arriving there in the late 60s. It had been an Irish neighborhood, and the Irish all moved over to Bay Ridge, which is the next neighborhood over. I went to a school, like for elementary school, it was the majority of the kids were all Puerto Rican too. So except for this little patch of Norwegian, like there was two blocks of just Norwegian families. So my best friend from much of elementary school was uh, Norwegian, which was kind of funny just because it just work, kind of worked out that way. Or Norwegian-American, I guess I should say, though his mom had immigrated. So like while I would spend my summers in Puerto Rico, often staying with my grandmother, he spent summers in Norway with family, which is kind of funny. We'd come back and like compare notes. <laughs> Living in that environment and that time you know, shaped, I guess, my outlook in a way. I was able to go to a magnet school for middle school where I saw Terminator at too young an age. <laughs> and then I was asked to be part of this kind of scholarship program that sends Latino and African-American students with promise to elite schools all in the Northeast. So I was able to go to this four-year school and be a boarder there and be exposed to a world that I never would have, you know, it was like basically like I thought I was going to go into an episode of the facts of life or something because that would be my only <laughs> experience of boarding school. But it was a different world. I mean, it was amazing education. It was also a strange coming to understand of the limits of well-meaning white people, I guess. Ah, uh, Yes. And so, which took me a long time to process, like that there could be a distinction between people who clearly wanted to help me and had my best interest in mind, but didn't always know the best way to do that or the most appropriate way to do that. It's something that when you're a teenager, it's kind of hard to, at least for me, it was hard to figure out. And it took years of like reflecting on that experience to get a sense of that. And so I was the kind of kid that always retreated into comics and science fiction and that was kind of my parallel world at the same time so it's funny at some point in the early 2000s i was part of this gaming community online and i would frequently come across when the topic of race would come up but frequently and i say when i say gaming i mean like tabletop gaming not video gaming okay uh, i would come across this attitude whenever the subject of race came up where many people who liked games like DD or vampire or whatever had never considered that people of color play role playing games or like were interested in those kinds of things it was just kind of like a reflection of their own world which is funny because for me growing up all the kids that i played though i started playing DD with my norwegian friend after that all of my gaming groups and my friends that i traded comics with and whatever we were all like kids of color we were all like our own little community of kids who were into that stuff that was very distinct i guess from the mainstream or what people consider the mainstream audience for that 
I'm interested to ask about the adjustment to private school, to boarding school specifically. Sure. Because as I mentioned to you before, I'm Canadian. I, I grew up in Canada until I was 21, just shy of 21, actually, when I came to Australia. And Australia has a far more regimented school system mm-hmm. than anything I'd seen in Canada outside of what I always thought of as those weird private Catholic schools where like one kid that you know would go to. Mm -hmm. When I was in public school in Canada, we never ever had to wear uniforms. We wore our own clothes. And as long as they were, you know, not ripped up or falling off you or dirty or had terrible swear words on them, Mm -hmm. you were fine. Coming here and even the public schools have a very strict uniform to the point where the example I always bring up, because I had a friend explain it to me where if you're standing at a bus stop waiting to go home and one of your socks has slid down your leg or you've taken off your hat or you've loosened your tie, if a teacher driving home spots you at the bus stop with your uniform in disarray, you will get a detention slip that will be waiting for you the next morning when you come to school. Wow. I would not have thrived in that environment. <laughs> My proletarian heart went, oh, it's fucking bullshit, man. Yeah. What the hell? No, you're out of school. They have no power over you. Yeah, no, that would not have worked. I would have been, I would, if I were Australian, I would have ended up in juvenile detention or something. <laughs> Yeah, uh, fighting the power. Yeah. But because the thing is, yeah, and I mean, I talked to previous guests of the show, Alex Watts, who mentioned coming from a rural school and going to a private school that's focused on music in north of Sydney and it being a very privileged area and him having to adjust to that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested to hear, like, what were your experiences? The school I went to was rather bohemian. So we called our teachers mm-hmm. by their first names. Oh, okay. <laughs> we did not have a uniform. We had a dress code, but it was pretty, you know, lax. My biggest formative experience in terms of like my first year there, I remember we weren't allowed to wear athletic clothing in the classroom. That was basically Mm -hmm. it. You couldn't wear your sweatpants and whatever. However, I was coming from a different environment. You know, it was the mid 80s. I was, you know, a hip hop kid who had a different idea about what was acceptable, what looked right and whatever. So I was in my English class in ninth grade, I was 14. And my teacher, uh, we were going to go to some event, some theater event, maybe we were reading Shakespeare, we were going to go see it or whatever. And she was saying that, you know, what was appropriate dress for the theater, you know, basically, and she's going around, she's like, what you're wearing is okay, what you're wearing is okay, you could probably change your shirt, you know, like that. And then she gets to me, and I'm wearing what I think is my best clothes. Now, for me, my best clothes at the time was a royal blue Adidas tracksuit. I was just about to say. With gold piping <laughs> and my Adidas shell toe sneakers with fat laces. Which sounds sick, by the way. It sounds great. <laughs> I, I wish I still had that. I, I'm looking for an affordable Adidas tracksuit so I can relive that moment. But anyway, she looks at me and she says, oh, you're not even dressed appropriately for the classroom. You know. Oh. <laughs> I could ask you to leave and go back to your dorm room and change. I'm not going to, but I could. So, you know, not to wear that, you know, because I guess it was new. It was literally like our second week of school. I, I just started there and I was just devastated. You know, I don't know if I ever wore that tracksuit again, which is kind of sad. But oh no, but it was I was devastated because to me, I was fly. You know, I was wearing the best clothes you could wear. You know, those were the kinds of adjustments. And I mean, the other adjustments I was making was I was coming from, a you know, a poor background, the single mom who worked, you know, and older siblings who worked to help keep our household together. So for me to go away to school was a huge, you know, privilege, you know, or a great opportunity that no one else in my family had had. There was a lot of kids of privilege, some celebrities kids who went to that school and other people of means. So just coming to grips with inequality and what that really means as opposed to like, not as something to aspire to, which I guess normally you would, but also something to see in, like in action was something to, you know, get used to. That and the fact that it was a Quaker school, it was a friend's school. So we had to go to a meeting for worship twice a week, which for me at first was very odd, you know, having gone to, you know, American public school. And I knew a few people that went to Catholic school because their parents were afraid of sending their kids to the public school and, you know, the bad influences there did send them to Catholic school. <laughs> so I had some sense of that, but it, I knew myself that I never, like going to Catholic school was something like my mom might have threatened me with if I wasn't behaving, <laughs> you know, like that was a great fear <laughs> of mine to go to Catholic school. So it was strange to be going to school. That was a completely different religious tradition for me and to be forced to do this thing twice a week, which I actually came to really quite like, which is funny, you know, by the time I was a senior, two times a week of 40 minutes of sitting quietly and like reflecting was something that I appreciated 
appreciated. And I, you know, looking back on it is something that I think, you know, it's a kind of a great practice. Yeah, when you think of it that way, as just like, okay, you're going to take this time to be alone with your thoughts and just kind of chill for a minute. Yeah, you're right. I think that's something that a lot of people, kids included, can benefit from. This also had a community aspect to it, right? Because you're sitting and oh, sure. you're yeah. sitting in a house of worship and whenever the spirit moved you, whatever that meant to you. <laughs> You stood and you spoke. Oh, wow. Okay. That also was, at least for me, at 14, to be given this space where we were taken seriously and like as part of the community and could speak and talk about anything. I mean, people talked about all variety of things or sometimes it would just be silent. No one would say anything. There's different branches of society of friends. So meeting for worship works differently for different sects, I guess. But we were a very, what they call unprogrammed meeting, which means all it is, is the community comes in. You sit down for 45 minutes in silence and the spirit moves you, you, you stand up and you speak, whatever that might be, and you sit back down. There was something definitely there that I think also, I don't know if it shaped everybody that went to that school, but it definitely shaped me in the sense of for one of the first places where I felt like what we said mattered or that somebody might care what we have to say. As a kid, I mean, that's hugely important. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound too romantic, too. I was still a kid who was like, ugh, I have to go to meeting for worship, you know, like, I, but I never skipped it, which is funny because, I, you know, I would cut another class, but I probably wouldn't skip meeting for worship. So I don't remember ever skipping it. So that there must have been something there. I could have gotten away with skipping it once or twice. <laughs> You mentioned being a hip-hop kid and, you know, having your Adidas tracksuit and your shell sneakers. One of the topics you specifically wanted to discuss was sort of the intersection between hip-hop and comics culture. So did you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah, sure. There's a, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. I've written a little bit about this. I wrote some about it in my dissertation project when I was in my doctoral program. Hip-hop being a culture and a practice that took from everything that was available around it, right? That was something born out of a situation of people who did not have very much and had to make do with what was around them, which is everything from records that they plucked out of the Salvation Army or their parents' collection to getting their power out of a street lamp if they're playing a party outside or whatever that <laughs> is always taken from a lot of different things, you know. And so from the reuse of comic book figures in graffiti, which is, you know, one of the four pillars, considered one of the four pillars of hip hop and the kind of balloon letters to the outsized personalities that you had among DJs and then MCs and dance crews with their names that they took up, you know, their MC names, their DJ names, their identities and personas that they would take up, they would perform as part of the, of part of, it feels like comic books and like cartoons and sci-fi and pop culture were a very much a shaping and a framing force for hip hop. You still see that a lot. I mean, not only from people who take their names from comic book culture, like MF Doom, or I was just about to say, yeah, <laughs> right, to something like Episcor's Hip Hop Family Tree, right, which kind of brings the history of hip hop into the comic tradition, right, by telling this kind of story and it's their origin stories. So there's that sense of it's kind of melding the weird. It's weird because it's taking superhero comics, which I think were the biggest influence on hip hop of that time and bringing it back into like indie comics that Fantagraphics is, is publishing, you know, that are like mm -hmm. they're not autobiographical, autobiographical, oh my goodness, autobiographical, autobiographical <laughs> comics, oh my God, uh, but they're like historical comics, right? They're not superhero comics or fiction comics. So it's kind of weird to, to I hadn't actually thought of that about that before, but it's kind of taking that strain of influence and then bringing it back into indie comics, I think is kind of fascinating and fun. He's doing an X-Men book coming soon, which I'm really looking yeah. forward to. He's doing something where he's doing the entire history of the X-Men in four prestige size issues or something like that. Oh, wow. I think that's the premise of it. I'm looking I'm looking forward. And also, I don't know if you've seen the Hip Hop Family Tree, but... I have, yes. Yeah, so you know that the pages have this quality that they tried to create of that like Bronze Age comics look, you know, that same 70s era and from which hip hop, you know first was born i guess so it has that feeling as well my wife and i were watching that show on netflix the get down i don't know if you've seen it but she was asking that if i thought any of the sets were exaggerated in terms of the environment that they're in with the burned out buildings and the lots and all that and i was like no it wasn't exaggerating <laughs> that was new york city that's where i grew up in like that is you know it's easy to think like they exaggerated that but it looked as bombed out as 
you know, any place where U.S. soldiers were going to bomb people. That's what the Bronx was like. I guess that's also taking in mind the environment that I was leaving to the environment that I was going to when I went to school. You know, that has stark a difference, you know. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that the urban setting of New York like that as being inspiring for the hip-hop movement because that was also hugely influential in comics. I mean, you look at Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen and you look at Luke Cage in Harlem, both of those settings had to be hugely updated and, you know, made excuses for because they ain't like that anymore. Yes. But this idea of, like, hey, I was... (laughs) I can say that as a Canadian hearing friends going to New York, considering that my only views of New York were from comic books or Law and Order episodes. My first view was, are you sure? Do you really want to go? <laughs> are you going to come back? You know, because this sort of overinflated view of street crime and urban decay and whatever else was this view of New York for a long time. Yeah, I mean, certainly. You know, it's funny because from the opposite end, right, as authentic as I felt those sets were in, in seeing the, the the blight in New York, I also kind of get annoyed with the idea of New York of that era being this place where you couldn't live, like this unlivable place, you know, I mean? this, this dangerous place, which like, it was dangerous, but at the same time, people lived there and made lives there, which like that weren't about crime, you know what I mean, or blights, mm-hmm. or, or at least that was just part of their environment so it didn't register in quite the same way or think that it could be different maybe i don't know i don't know but there's a tension there between wanting to accurately display what it was like but also flattening it so that it that's all it becomes right that all you can think about when you think about new york of that era is the crime or the graffiti or the burned out buildings or whatever it might be It's something that I realized when I was a bit younger. Uh, I had a friend that I had met through a forum who sort of became a pen pal for a while. She lived in Tel Aviv. I was seeing stuff on the news at the time of, you know, bombs going off and raids happening. And I would honestly get scared for her. And I would say, like, how do you do this? How do you go through your daily life? And her answer was, well, it's just life. You get up in the morning, you go to work, you come home, you have dinner, you watch TV. It's how life progresses. And that's always kind of stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, my mom, she still lives in New York of that era in some ways. Like in terms of she lived so much of her life with New York that way that she sometimes still kind of leans on that memory of it and thinks of the possibilities of what could happen of some terrible thing that might befall me you know which is the per big thing you know especially when i was younger and still living at home was if i came home late she was always very concerned and I'm like mom you know it's it's okay you know it's not it's not what it used to be like and people went out and stayed out late back then too so you know it's like it's okay <laughs> by the way i've just found a panel because I was, was while you were talking, I just looked up uh, Hip Hop Bentley Tree, and I found a panel that I think beautifully illustrates what you were talking about. I just dropped into the chat. Yes, exactly. Alter egos, <laughs> cool costumes, right? Everybody has their <laughs> their thing, right? Their other identity, you know, <laughs> their costume in a way of various kinds, you know, like Run DMC in the black Adidas tracksuit and the gold chains and the black fedoras or whatever they are. That's a costume, you know. Or Slick Rick with his iPad. Does Slick Rick need an eye patch? Does he have a? Uh, is is he have? <laughs> I think if you asked him, I think he would say yes. I do need an eye patch. <laughs> like I, I, the Piscor drew him with like a squinty eye, but I honestly don't know that's been actual life or whether Slick Rick it has something wrong with his eye or, or not. Right? I have no idea. You know. So it's it's kind of it's kind of great. It's a fantastic panel. So we've talked a little bit about hip hop. What was the kind of things that you were listening to? Like what was getting your attention? At that time? Yeah, at that time that we've wanted to put together your playlist to kind of oh, exemplify that time. At that time, there's so, there's so much. I don't even know where to where to begin. I mean, there would have been Run DMC, obviously, Houdini, the Fat Boys, Slick Rick, the Treacherous Three, you know, with Cool Modi, LL Cool J's first record or so. I, I feel disappointed in LL Cool J for some reason <laughs> it like <laughs> like I feel like he's mentioned LL Cool J now and it's he's a different person than the person that I remember like what I remember about him is that he was 18 when his first record dropped and it was everyone was like oh he's so young and so talented it was like a big deal that he was so young you know and now he does like NCIS whatever that guy was in Deep Blue Sea yeah right that <laughs> um, had the soundtrack track about how deepest bluest his hat is like a shark's fin yeah and so it's like yeah that's the thing about being young and talented is eventually you stick around and you become well 
old. Yeah, right. And you do a rap on unintentional racists or whatever that song was. <laughs> which is like oh don't do that ll don't do it but yeah i mean i used to listen on saturday nights on a, a local radio station kiss fm i would listen to the kiss master mix it was usually either dj red alert who was working with a lot of rappers at the time or dj chuck chill out and they would do like several hours just sets of music and I would record them on my little cassette player. That's what I would play. I'd walk and I'd go outside and hang out on the stoop or I would bring my boombox to school. That's what I would be playing. I'd be playing the master mix from the week before. So there was always whatever new music was coming out was being played. Stuff that I don't, to this day, I probably don't even know what it is because they were also playing stuff that, you know, never caught on. And also mixing in a bunch of other kinds of music, because that's the thing about early, early hip hop, even before the people that I've been talking about, was there were no hip hop records, right? There were no rap records. They were taking popular music of various kinds from the early 70s and the 60s and even before, and they were rapping over them, right? They were, or they were extending the break so that people could rap over them and or break dance. Hip hop has always had this impetus to absorb and to make use of everything that, you know, it comes into contact with. So those DJs would do that too, right? There was, I participated in a project where they were, Cornell University has this great collection called the Hip Hop Collection, where they have all these materials that people have been donating. And Africa Bombada donated his entire record collection to this Holy shit. So they opened up a gallery space in New York City where people could come in and there was literally 20 something thousand records or more. And so they needed help. So the people would just come in and you for the benefit or would, that you would get is that you would get to look through Africa Bombada's records. Uh, you would do some cataloging for them and you can come and do an hour or you can come and do all day, you know, whatever it was. Oh, my God. That sounds like a dream. <laughs> I have often thought of offering my services to secondhand bookstores saying, please let me come in and just like sort through that giant box of comics you have in the back. Yes. It's a mess. Please, I'll do it for free. So looking through, I mean, is just like, you know, there was lots of records that you would expect to find in there, like early rap records and R&B records, James Brown and all that. But also there was Pink Floyd in there and there was Rolling Stones in there. And there was obviously there was Kraftwerk in there because that electronic music was very influential to early hip hop. So there was all of this other music. And he had a star system where he would be like the beat on, you know, this song on Pink Floyd, The Wall is really great. So I'm going to extend the beat from that, you know, so it would be like records that you would, you know, that later in my teen years, I would listen to when I kind of stepped away from hip hop a little bit, because I was trying to assimilate into what my peers were doing uh, away at school, that I never would have associated with where I come from or, or having something to do that was actually part of what was influencing the people that had created the thing that I loved so much, you know, which was another, you know, earlier lesson, I guess, was the ability to mix and match with all of these different genres of music that I love. And later on, when I would, I DJed a little bit myself, I always was trying to find what was the, what was the song that I could bring in that was maybe unexpected, right? Or that would get a reaction from the crowd different than what had been happening before just because they wouldn't have expected me to play it or but they know it somehow you know so it's fun by the way did you have a cool dj name well i usually went or... by dj juan epstein <laughs> all right from you know welcome back cotter it was what juan epstein yeah. was this one of the sweat house so it was dj juan epstein aka dj sweat hog <laughs> aka dj dollar bin because the other thing is I'm always, and I'm proud of this to this day, was so many of my records come from the dollar bin at the secondhand store or straight from the garbage. In the early 2000s, all over Manhattan, people were throwing away their records because they just had CDs and they were just getting into MP3s. Like, so I more than once, I would find by a dumpster leaning against a lamppost dozens and dozens of records and I would just look through and grab whatever I wanted. So I have all of these. So they, my friends made fun of me and they started calling me DJ Dollar Bin because I would be like, oh, there's a <laughs> bin of dollar records. I can't not look through that, you know. No, I definitely feel that because I know my record collection got started that way because I was living in Newtown, which is kind of a, was a more bohemian suburb than it is now, 14 years later. Yeah, every time, like, I swear half the furniture in my apartment came from stuff people were throwing out. I still have a hat rack that somebody threw out in that first year, but I would go by and yeah, you're right. There would just be these stacks of records and sometimes it would be because someone moved out. Sometimes it's because someone died. Sometimes it's, oh, I don't have room to take this, so I'll just put it out. And a good chunk of my records came from there was a guy who would run a pop music pub quiz. Mm -hmm. And so there were all these pristine records. 
and a lot of them were singles. A lot of them were stuff where it's like they would have one novelty track that would be like mm-hmm. your intro to the next round and were also just exceptional albums. I managed to get like a solid chunk of Prince's library that way. Wow, it's great. Just because I walked by and went, oh, look at that. Oh, here's some Talking Heads and here's some Peter Gabriel. And hey, look, like seven Prince albums. I will be taking that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I got, you know, my hands on all sorts of weird like records that I, I look at now, I'll look through and I'll say, oh, I don't even getting that. Like, where, why would I have it? Like, I own every single Billy Joel album on vinyl, not because I bought them. <laughs> Not because I paid even a singular dollar for them, but because I found them in the garbage. (laughs) And now you have them. Right. And you'll have them forever. (laughs) But that also means that, you know, and I'm not a Billy Joel fan by any, I mean, he has some fine songs, but it also meant that when I would play out sometimes, I would drop like Big Shot or something, you know, (laughs) and people would be like, what is that? What? Like, did not expect to hear that, you know, like, but, you know, it's Mm -hmm. nice to have. (laughs) It's nice to be able to do. I think my my biggest memory of hearing an unexpected thing drop into a mix. I was at a <laughs> I was at a bar in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and it was called Zephod Beeblebrox, and the entire thing was in blue light, and all the drinks glowed, which for my you know twenty year old self was the coolest fucking thing. Yeah. I didn't even realize, even though I had read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy much earlier, that it was named after Zephod <laughs> from Hitchhiker's Guide. I still have a recipe for a Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster that I reverse engineered from that place. Wow. And I was there sitting you know, on the edge of the dance floor because I was too cool to dance, mostly because I was terrified of embarrassing myself. Suddenly, out of nowhere, like mixed in to the mix, I was hearing this. And I stopped, I stopped dead. And I was like, what? And then he put it in again. And he used that to kind of play out of a song and into the next one as sort of like a bridge. Mm -hmm. And then I got really excited and I grabbed my friend Mark by his lapels and I started shaking him. And I'm like, that's the creeping up music from Transformers. It's from Transformers. (laughs) What the hell? And and he didn't get it because he was a little older and and hadn't watched Transformers. And I'm like, you don't understand. You don't understand. This is really important. (laughs) And I went home and I realized it was from a set of a guy named Tony Bacala, mm-hmm. who was from Chicago. And he mixed all kinds of sound bites and incidental music from Transformers. There was a particular one where there was an oh God, an incredibly dated episode where Trax makes friends with a bunch of breakdancers and there's an evil disco being run by the Decepticons and brainwashing people <laughs> into building a building for them. It was awful. But all of the music was... Uh, in fact, I'm going to see if I can find it because it is stuck in my mind that literally no one will be going to a club and dancing to this. <laughs> so hang on. It's too bad it wasn't like Gem and the Holograms. That would have been awesome. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listeners, if you haven't gone and listened to the Gem Jam, please go and listen to the Gem Jam. <laughs> the episode was called Autobop. Now I need somebody to write a Gem and Transformers crossover. Well, <laughs> IDW it has, clearly has been listening. <laughs> really? Yes. They had a thing called, I think it was Revolution, where it was Transformers, Mask, Gem wanted to be in it, but they eventually said, okay, the Gem comics are too separate. They couldn't bring it in. It was Transformers, Mask, ROM, there's a whole bunch of them. And yeah, the best issue of that was there was an issue of Transformers More Than Meets the Eye where there was a was a dire wraith from ROM wanted to invoke... A- I'm trying to think how to explain it. Chris Sims would explain it much better. But they're trying to invoke this ritual called the crossover where they needed characters from three different universes. (laughs) And therefore, we're having a crossover. And therefore, we can bring ourselves into the spotlight. It's it's very silly. No, but Jem needed to be there. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) I wonder if Rom and Dazzler ever... I dropped the the IDW Rom book. I'm a huge Rom fan. As when we were talking about robots earlier, like Rom was the one for me as a kid. Like I loved Rom. Rom was the first comic book series that I ever made sure to own every single issue, every single appearance in every other book, every appearance of Dire Wraiths in every other book, every appearance of Torpedo because Torpedo was <laughs> in his like cast for a while. Who, who is even Torpedo? But anyway, a Dazzler, now I'm thinking, of, I'm trying to think of like the Marvel equivalent of Gem and Rom, new Rom, like would be Daz and Rom. Now I have to look that up to see if they ever met. <laughs> For a while, Rom had everybody guest starring in his book because, you know, books like that, that's how they would draw new readers. <laughs> that's also why I think, speaking of Transformers, there was an issue of the Marvel Transformers comic where black-suited Spider-Man yes, I had... hangs out with Gears. I bought that off the <laughs> off the uh, newsstand. Oh, good one. I was like, what? I was like, what? No way, <laughs> Spider-Man. But even then, I was, or I was in middle school, I guess, I was discerning. I, I, I thought it was cool at first, but then when I actually read it, I was like, nah, I don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> 
and you could see it was purely just like okay we're going to bring some eyes onto the transformers comic and we're going to do this by bringing them into the marvel universe right well it's like i always think of alpha flight number 13 i think it is wolverine is like predominantly on the cover like defending Mm -hmm. oh i forgot her name but she'll later be guardian oh yeah it's uh, heather hudson heather hudson right and it's clearly just to sell the comic you know, because you open it and it's a dream sequence and Wolverine is in it for like <laughs> two, three panel. I don't know. I haven't looked at it in a while, but definitely a disappointing amount. And it's not even real. She has a dream and Wolverine's in it. Yeah. Someone was like, try Wolverine on the cover. We'll make sure that if they flip through it, they'll see Wolverine inside. Someone will pick it up and buy it. Yeah, it's definitely. So I have a weird affinity for Alpha Flight, not just because it was Canadian Super Team in a time that I was reading comics, but this year I was at Elizabeth Bookshop, which is a secondhand bookstore, and I was flipping through their comics rack, and I saw an almost complete run of something like 70 issues of early 80s Alpha Flight. And I was looking through, and I'm like, either someone's mom has thrown this out, or someone has died and this was under their bed. That's funny. I've sold two nearly complete runs of Alpha Flight on eBay in my life. <laughs> Maybe it was you. Maybe I was looking at your books. <laughs> the first time were my own. I mean, when I say nearly complete, I forget how long the initial run went, but around the first 50, but maybe 30 of the first 50 I had, I had, but in the nineties, I sold off basically my entire comic book collection, except for every issue of ROM that I had and every Spider-Man related issue I had. So I mean, I got rid of all my X-Men too, which I regret. It's funny though, because the thing is floppy comics issues are tied with 45 records for being the stupidest media to store in any usable way. Yes, that's true. But I've bought them all back so (laughs) of course you have do you have long boxes stacked in the corner of the room i've got short boxes because i find long boxes too cumbersome but yes i've got it you still feel that the collective noun for a group of 45 records is the jukebox (laughs) and the collective noun for a group of floppy issues is the spinner rack yeah right i would love an actual spinner rack but then recently or not recently now i guess like 2014 or so a friend of mine had a box of comics he was never as into comics as i was we met in college so it was after our like primary young you know collecting comics era and so he had had this box of comics that had been closed since 1989 when he went away to college of random stuff. And so for years, I've been trying to get him to give it to me, especially when I got back into comics and I was doing it as a scholarly thing. I was like, you don't want those comics. You're not going to sell those comics. You should just give me those comics. <laughs> so we, we made a deal where I would take the box. I would catalog what was inside of it. I would keep what I wanted and I would sell the rest and I would we'd split the money like 60, 40 or whatever it was since I was doing most of the legwork. But I found another big run of Alpha Flight in that box (laughs) and i sold that on ebay too so maybe they made their way to australia i don't know (laughs) alpha flight is following you yeah but i still like collecting floppies because i love all the material culture of comics so the letters pages the advertisements the editorial like the bullpen bulletins or whatever that to me that's as much a part of sitting down to read a comic at least comics of that era as the comic itself so i love that and i still haven't gotten into and maybe it's just my age, but I haven't gotten into digital comics at all. I just, I can't, something about sitting down with a screen is not my ideal comics reading situation. So even the Brian K. Vaughn's The Private Eye, which was originally a digital comic that was not going to be printed. As soon as it was mm-hmm. printed, I went and bought it <laughs> because I was like, Brian K. Vaughn's great. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so I was like, well, I've read all this electronically, but I need to have the experience of like sitting down and reading it. You know, I wrote about it for the blog, too, actually. I got into digital comics primarily because, A, I was running out of room on my shelf, and B, because it's so much cheaper than buying them here in Australia. Because, as I've complained at length on Twitter and on this show, floppy issues in Australia, new ones, uh, cost anywhere between $7 and $12 an issue. I'm almost out of buying new comics, just waiting for the trade, because... Yeah, tra- trades aren't so bad because you can usually get a trade for between 18 and yeah. $25. And so it's like, I will wait. There's no reason for me to buy floppy issues unless there's something special. Like, for example, I bought that Batman Elmer Fudd yes. one shot. It was sold out purely because I, I wanted it. I could not believe that it existed. And I'm like, I'm going to the store. I'm buying that day one. I missed it. I was so upset. Oh. I still haven't read it, but everyone I know who I trust about their opinions on comics told me about it. But with new comics, I feel like less invested in floppies because even though letters columns are coming back, in certain books generally speaking i feel like i have a good sense of what's going on in comics culture right now because of the internet right and because of twitter Mm -hmm. yeah totally but going back and reading 
what people were writing about, writing into comics about, and the editors were choosing to print in the 60s and 70s and 80s is much more telling to me, right? And much more fodder for analysis and for consideration. Like right now, I'm working on a project where I'm collecting pre-internet letters that ask for or about more representation, both of gender and race in comics trying to think about what the discourse of people before the current era where, you know, if you complain about that on Twitter, someone's going to come tell you you're a social justice warrior and a snowflake, or the people who complain that this is some sort of new idea, right, that's ruining comics, and trying to find the examples of the people who wrote in asking those kinds of questions that we're still asking, asking for the kinds of things that we still want to see more of and want to be see done better in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s because they exist, they're there, you know, which is great. You know, people who call the writer out to say, hey, there's a letter in Micronauts where they're like, you know, why is there only one woman? And why is everyone basically white even though we're in this alien universe, you know? So it's interesting to see that those kinds of issues always existed. There was always that segment of the population that was interested, but they didn't have the necessarily have the voice to be paid attention to or to have anyone object to them as they might now. Yeah, of modern letter columns that I quite enjoy. The letters for sex criminals have been yes. so, like as good reading as the rest of the book. The letters column in Unstoppable Wasp oh, yeah? is fantastic because it's all about women in STEM roles and like actual interviews with scientists and stuff like that. It's very, very much kind of ladies to the front, and I love it. But thinking back to older ones, I listened to the Wait Walk series, The Baxter Building, where they're reading all of the original Fantastic Four run. Right. And hearing about the weird kind of semi-propaganda adversarial letter columns that they had. Yes. Where if they made a choice that they knew was bad, they would print eight letters praising the choice, one letter that was against it, and then the next month they would post a bunch of letters that were saying, hey, that guy was a jerk for not liking what you were doing. And it's very much controlling the narrative. Interesting. And rewriting history. It's it's really neat. It's interesting because I have I have all those letters and the, they're pre-printed in the Omnibus, which is one of the reasons why I got the Omnibus because I can't afford the original issues, obviously. And so I've read those letters a lot. So it's, I, I want to go back and think about that ratio that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think, though, my favorite was reading the letters in the back of Power Pack. Yes. Because they were being written by actual kids who were reading a story about actual kids. One of my all-time favorite series. Oh, it's so good. I love Power Pack. Louis Simonson is one of my favorite Marvel people, period. Mm -hmm. When June Brigman was drawing Power Pack, it was just great. John Bogdanov was great, too. But Simonson and Brigman together, just that book was just so great. And it just, I've written a little bit about it, but the, just the sense of capturing kids' view of, of the world and how seriously they take it and the kind of secret keeping with their identity and their problem with their parents resonates, I think, so well with what adulthood probably seems like. And I can remember adulthood seeming like as a kid where there's all these things you cannot know. And part of being an adult is like hiding things. Like there's definitely a way of thinking of, of adulthood in that way, especially from a kid's perspective, all the things that your parents or don't want to tell you about, right? Or don't want to explain to you or claim you won't understand that seem like secrets, right? That seem like the things that somehow are answers, you know, with the trick being that there actually are no answers and nobody actually knows any secrets, but. <laughs> yeah, and much in a way that something like Teen Titans didn't. Yeah. Yes. Power Pack Kids talked like kids. Yes. At no point did it seem phony or false or put on in the way that, yeah, something like early Teen Titans would, you know, Zowie Man dig those groovy sounds. Well, when Katie Power would bully Franklin Richards, it was the best because that's, it felt so real. <laughs> like she was yeah. the youngest and the most put upon. So if there's going to be a younger kid, she's definitely going to assert her authority and be kind of a jerk to him, even though Franklin Richards is the darling of the Marvel Universe, like the cutest kid. Like, who could... <laughs> destroy us all but <laughs> but you know it, that felt so real and she's like you're the baby you know like and that's like a, a really important thing to establish when you're four or five years old you, you when she was five years old like you want to make sure you establish who's the kid and who's the baby you know like that's i might be the littlest kid but you're the baby and there is a pecking order yes <laughs> Yeah. Which unrelatedly, completely into this conversation, but it just reminded me. Someone pointed out, I don't know if you follow wrestling at all. I don't. There is a current women's champion named Alexa Bliss, and her kind of persona is this kind of over it mean girl who points out how, 
you know, how dumb a lot of the tropes of wrestling are. Uh-huh. And it's actually a little too successful because it's making everybody else look a little bit bad. But because she has blonde pigtails, kind of like Harley Quinn. Uh-huh. And she comes out and she starts like telling these other women, like, oh, what you're doing is dumb. Someone pointed out that she's basically a grown up Angelica Pickles from Rugrats. Oh, and Rugrats is after my time. I don't I don't know Rugrats. <laughs> I was right on the cusp, but luckily I had younger siblings that allowed me to watch it. And now I, whenever I see her, I just imagine her saying, you dumb babies. Yeah. And being the smallest kid who could therefore lord over the babies yes. and say, no, no, you're dumb. This is how it actually works, even though she had no idea what was going right. on. Right, so she's like the most culturally aware person in wrestling or something, or at least that's her persona in a way, where she's like... Saying stuff like, oh, look, you're going to come out here and you're going to tell everybody how you're a scrappy underdog and how you're going to come back and fight and take what's yours. But look, we both know what's going to happen. You're going to get to the end and you're going to choke because that's who you are. It happened this time and it happened that time. And really, you should just accept it. <laughs> you know, that, that kind that's of stuff. That's great. Oh, now I want no interest. I, I never was a kid who was into wrestling and I never I know mm-hmm. plenty of people who like I got back into comics have gotten back into wrestling. I know scholars who love wrestling, but I've never was that in my nephew loved wrestling, man. But I'm interested in it from a kind of outsider's point of view in the sense of as a, like a cultural practice and like example of popular culture. Like I, I definitely have a lot of affinity for knowing more uh, for it and wanting to know more about it and like its performative aspects and its narratives and stuff which which interests me and it's currently the best time for that because you've got lucha underground which is basically a telenovela where people do flips in the ring right to to bring things to a head you've got chikara which is ridiculous and over the top and really character based and then you've got things like nxt which is the developmental territory of wwe where some of the top tier wrestling is happening right now like where they brought in a lot of really 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 good indie guys and ladies to come in and just put on these incredible athletic shows without the pressure of oh you have to do a long-term storyline it can be just no you can come in and like for example they have their own show called 205 live which is uh, all cruiserweights mm-hmm. so you're seeing that lucha libre style you're seeing a lot of the japanese style it's fast and fun and flippy Ooh, and so I'm... yeah it's a really good time and so i think i could put you onto a few things yeah i'll check for one former guest of the show claire mulcarin i sent them the <laughs> this very long and complicated list where Chikara did a time travel storyline because <laughs> one of their guys, Eddie Kingston, has a move called Back Fist to the Future. Oh, why? And he hit somebody with it and sent him forward to 2015 where he grabbed the Chikara yearbook and then came back to the present and read that he was going to beat this guy at a certain time and so came back to have the fight, but then it changed. And then he was hit again, which sent him back to the original time. And it's like it's honestly two pages of explaining and it's glorious i mean that's another like thing where there's the the clear overlap with like superhero comics is is professional wrestling you know and uh oh yeah love and rockets which is my all-time favorite comic series probably mm-hmm. has made a lot of use of that of especially jaime hernandez's work with women's wrestling but that mm-hmm. basically blurs the line between superheroes and wrestlers so that often the conversation is kind of the same and in some stories they they just straight overlap you know and the world itself seems to the borders between the worlds seem to not explicitly but implicitly kind of go away so that suddenly wrestlers really are kind of superhero figures and they're all women too which is great yeah hey john cena is in talks to play captain marvel just like how the rock was in talks to play black adam and yeah, I'd watch the shit out of that movie. Of playing of Captain Marvel. Oh, the DC Captain Marvel. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. No, he's, he's not <laughs> going to be Carol Danvers. Well, I was thinking Marvel. I was like, huh? Uh, <laughs> Either I, way. It's all confusing. I mean, I like DC Captain Marvel Shazam too, but I, I get too confusing. And I mean, look at me. I like know about comics and I get confused. Whenever, and I'm sure you know this too, whenever I try to explain something to non-comics people, it's like, do you really want to know the answer? That's that's my first thing. Because <laughs> people will often come to me and be like, hey, I saw the Avengers movie. I saw a Batman movie. And this and this didn't make sense. Can you explain? You know about comics. You know about superheroes. Will you explain it to me? And I always preface with, do you really want to know? about this <laughs> or do if you really get coffee give me at least right. 20 minutes get comfy or do you just want like a quick answer <laughs> right like because i'm happy to do both I'm, i don't take it personally i don't necessarily need to go into the convolutions of of continuity which even i sometimes don't know but but i i want you to be prepared for what you're asking <laughs> yeah i had a workmate ask me uh, after just seeing guardians of the galaxy 2 it's like so who's this adam warlock guy and i'm like <laughs> <sighs> all right all right sit down 
Yeah, this is going to be a <laughs> Sit while. Sit down. Take some LSD. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Jerry Conway in the 70s. <laughs> All right, Isvaldo, we should probably look about wrapping this up. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, you could go to my blog, The Middle Spaces, which is at www.themiddlespaces.com, where I write about comics and I write about music, some of the things that we've been talking about today. And you can find me on Twitter, at The Middle Spaces, no spaces. And I also have a Tumblr called Notes from Comics Collecting, where I share photos of covers from my comics, basically, in my collection. I photograph them in the condition they're in, and I write a little bit about where I got them, what I remember about them, or memories that are associated with them. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been hugely informative, and I love talking to you. Yes, this, I can't wait to listen to it <laughs> and to hear it and to put it out in the world. And thanks for having me. It's been a whole lot of fun. What I love about your show is that I get to hear all these people that I normally would never have heard anything about and you know, hear about their lives and their and their relationships to popular culture. And that's what drew me to your show to begin with, because that's basically my steez, right? That's my like scholars, <laughs> like my, both my personal and my scholarly like focus is like, oh, I'm, that's what I'm interested in is how people put that stuff to use in order to think about and reflect about their identity and they are so that your podcast appealed to me immediately thanks makes me feel good i'm kind of scared of the academy i think that my parents are proud of me i just wish i knew how to be comfortable here i never feel like i'm allowed to breathe rubbing shoulders with these old nerds rocking sweater vests in their office hours eating hors d'oeuvres while i soul search trying to make some sense of the ivory tower feeling sober am i just a coward or a poser i don't really doubt it or a soldier books and holsters but the I can't fight the power cause they write books Nobody reads for these white folks that they trying to please Recycle all the right quotes Trying to cite blokes Say my cup of tea Eating checks Thank you very much to Dr. Osvaldo Iola for his time Now in preparation for this episode uh, Osvaldo came out with a shocking confession That he's not really a cocktail guy Preferring either beer or champagne But I can work with that I came up with three champagne cocktail options, ran them past the dock, and we got approval. I think the one he chose was actually rather fitting, considering that we talked a lot about hip-hop combining influences from all over the place. While this cocktail pulls ingredients from Italy, Germany, France, and combines them in a way that's 100% melting pot, and the result is bubbly, sweet, potent, and dangerously drinkable. As such, I could only call it one thing. I present the knockout. In a champagne coupe, pour one and a half ounces of Calvados. If you remember, this is French apple brandy, and it's very nice stuff. Add a quarter of an ounce of amaretto and two tablespoons of applesauce. Top up with three ounces of brewed champagne. Give the whole thing a stir and serve. Don't you call this a regular drink. It's going to rock this land. Enjoy. Since I called you bad words, I went ahead and got my masters. I trimmed the last of my relaxers, so my fro big got some more gigs. My cell phone says I'm The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-T, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat keep an eye out on the instagram i'm going to be posting a whole bunch of film photos that i took at a local wrestling show which is always a good time if you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month now normally i also say that you can pledge as much as you want but really i'm looking for those dollar people those people who got a buck kicking around maybe you wanted an hq unlike me who always bombs out in the seventh question god damn it Patrons get early access to episodes, physical mail, cursive tweets, and I would just really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. 
you can also write a review and I'll read it out. Wouldn't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can head on over to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist involving every song I've ever used in the show going all the way back to episode one. That's more than 10 hours of music, including this one. It's Trans-Europe Express by Kraftwerk. Osvaldo mentioned it's the first ever record he spun on his older brother's turntable. Those of you who follow my Twitter will know I've been having a bit of a rough time lately. I've gotten pretty horribly sick. Not that you can hear it, I cut out all the coughs. But all the days off work surprisingly have put a huge dent in my editing process. And I found myself finishing episodes on the last day before they're put up. That's fine, I'm still meeting my deadlines. But what I've found is that I've got like four bonus episodes stacked up and ready to go. But the question becomes, do I just space them between regular episodes? Do I combine them into one giant bonus episode? What should I do? Hit me up on Twitter if you have some ideas. Next week, I'll be talking to Juliana Finch, singer, songwriter, and owner of a very successful Kickstarter, about Lilith Fair and having tastes way ahead of her time. Join me, won't you? What's funny is that I just kind of casually woke up and looked over and my partner was feeding the baby and she goes, when's your podcast? And I looked over and the clock said 7.29 and I had a terrible moment where I thought, shit, is it 7.30? I was halfway out of bed to race to the laptop and then I went, no, no, it's 9.30. I'm fine. I'm fine. Which is funny because at that moment I was asleep because I've had faculty meetings all day. I took a nap as soon as I got home because I was tired. And I was like, the last thing I want to do is complain about being tired to Lucas, who I know has an infant. (laughs) (laughs) Although the thing is, I'm proud to say that for all that my kid has the occasional trouble sleeping, he is not the nightmare that I've heard from other kids. It's like there's a parental kind of misery Olympics that Mm -hmm. I'm loath to engage in. Yeah. But I also know that some of my friends who have babies have had a much rougher time than me so i can't be the one who just kind of brightly leans back and goes oh yeah my baby sleeps for like three hours at a time and just like wait for them to just throw their hate upon me right i don't have any kids but for my friends who do i I just say yeah having a kid is terrible like i'll I'll just i'll just be like you're right whatever you say you know it's just like i'm sure it's awful (laughs) the key phrase is wow that sucks yeah exactly